December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's hardcore history. The Blitz Edition. This is the second of our Blitz episodes, and this is an attempt to look at history a different way, not in a narrative sense, where we say, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed for America, blah, blah, blah. But to take some of the ideas that are historical in nature and examine them. If you heard the first Blitz show we ever did, we talked about how much of an effect maybe intoxicating substances might have had on some of the leaders in world history and how it may have impacted the decisions that they made that impacted the world that we live in now. Not exactly traditional history, if you think about it. Well, today's show is a little like that, in the sense that I'm hung up on a thought, and this thought has a basis in something, and I'm sort of wondering about it. And so this show is not going to be full of answers, it's going to be full of questions. The thought that I'm hung up on has to do with we human beings as a species. And the question I keep mulling through my mind is, are we inherently evil? It's a strange thought, isn't it? Because I know you don't think of yourself as evil, and I don't think of myself as evil. And you look around the world and you see lots of people, the Mother Teresas of the planet, out there trying to do good and help people and lots of people give money to charity and we don't think of ourselves as evil but what got me thinking about this subject was a particular human institution and the more i thought about it the more i did historical research on this institution the more it seemed to me that this institution is almost in our genes maybe again this show is going to be full of questions not answers the institution I'm talking about is human slavery. And the reason it's on my mind has to do with the last big series of history shows we did, the ones on the Punic War. Don't know if you, uh, Punic Wars, I don't know if you caught those. But it must have been the third or the fourth history episode where we talked about ancient peoples and there was such an emphasis in the story on slaves and slavery. And I remember thinking while I read the, you know, primary source material and everything on the subject, how big of a role slavery was playing in the story. And, you know, maybe a disclaimer right off the bat. Most of you know, if not all of you, that I'm an American. And we Americans have our own terrible, sordid, relatively recent experience with human slavery. And it colors everything we think about on this issue. As a matter of fact, colors it so much that a large part of my research to have this conversation with you today involved almost deprogramming myself a little bit. I had to work very hard, in fact, to find some source material that would let me do that. Because whereas you can find lots of stuff on particular periods or kinds of slavery. For example, if you wanted to do a show on the history of American slavery, there are lots of good works. But if you want the kind of overall perspective that you can only get from a work that looks at all of human slavery, there's precious little out there. So I'm indebted to a guy named Milton Meltzer, 
who wrote a groundbreaking book called Slavery, A World History. And what's important about that book is he puts the experience that we Americans have so right in front of our eyes that we can't see anything else about slavery and puts it into the larger human perspective. And when you read Melcher's book, what it shows you is just how much a part of the world, and I don't mean the world in the past, but even the world now, slavery is. How many different names it goes under. I mean, take this as an example. See, we here in the United States, we have a racial component to the slavery that was in our past. Remember, it's black-skinned people in this country who were slaves. And so we Americans somehow equate slavery with Africa and African-Americans and racism and all that stuff, which is absolutely true in the case of our version of it. What we forget is through most of human history, it wasn't that confined at all. I mean, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of you listening to me right now almost certainly has slave blood in their veins because somebody in your family tree somewhere was almost certainly a slave. And there are a lot of people in this country because slavery is still a political issue in the United States. There are still people in politics pushing for things like reparations for slavery and all sorts of things that it's not uncommon to hear in this country people say things like, well, that was a long time ago. People have to just move on and get past that a long time ago. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago when you think about it in historical terms. My wife's grandfather is in his mid-90s, which is not that unusual anymore. You double his lifespan, two good long lifespans, and you're back into slavery times, ladies and gentlemen. Wasn't that long ago. And if you don't think that the scars from something like that could still be affecting the descendants of those people today, my goodness, look at how the Jewish folks haven't forgotten the slavery that they went through under Egypt's pharaohs. And you're talking 4,000 years ago or something. Those are the kind of scars that might never go away. And I was trying to think about how evil our ancestors were to be slaveholders. And before you think to yourself, well, my ancestors weren't slaveholders, think again. What Milton Meltzer's book points out so accurately and so vividly is how few peoples on this planet, no matter what time or place you're talking about, were not slaveholders. And oftentimes, the few societies that you can point to that were not slaveholding societies, they weren't not slaveholding societies by choice. They were usually the ones that were the victims of the slave trade, not powerful enough to take somebody else's slaves. And had the situation been reversed, they very well could have owned slaves too. The numbers of people you can point to on this planet throughout history who did not have slaves is small. In other words, this is a human institution that is almost common all over the world at any given time. Whenever I encounter something like this, I'm always struck by it, and I start to wonder how much of this is a part of who we are. And I have told you people before that I grew up in an era where science fiction was big. Many of you have, too. And so somehow my brain, when it's trying to figure out what's normal for human beings, can't help but think about things in almost a science fiction kind of way. With the slavery issue, I started to wonder about things like colonization, which of course is something we human beings have done forever, right? People in, say, ancient Greece, when there'd be 
too many people in a city would send out a bunch of those people on a boat to find some shore somewhere that was unoccupied. They'd build a city and start a colony of their own. People have been doing this forever. Well, in science fiction, people from this planet have been colonizing space forever. As long as people have been writing those, you know, comic books or H.G. Wells was talking about things or people have been colonizing space. And I often thought to myself, okay, if we took 300 or 400 human beings from this planet, sent them off in a spaceship to another planet where they were going to start a new life, probably take a constitution with them, something that allowed them to transfer the values of we humans now to this new colony And we left them there and let them develop amongst themselves for a couple hundred years. And we went back there. How much of what, you know, maybe is, you know, part of this human nature thing would they have developed in the interim? Would they have stuck to that constitution, you know, word for word and developed a society that looked a lot like ours here on the planet Earth? Or would they have developed more like our ancestors, with a lot of human institutions that maybe we don't have anymore for one reason or another. In other words, when you think about slavery, if you went back to the space colony a couple hundred years after they settled it, would there be slaves there? Now, maybe we need to define slavery for a minute because there's all different kinds. The classic kind of slavery is something called chattel slavery. And chattel slavery is literally having a person that you own like you would own a farm animal. That's the kind of slavery we had here in the American South, for example. Now, chattel slavery, lots of chattel slavery in human history to look at. All kinds. I mean, the Native Americans practiced it. The Pacific Islanders practiced it. The uh, people in the whole Mediterranean world practiced it. I mean, there's precious few places you could go to that didn't have chattel slaves. And the places that didn't tended to be places that didn't need human labor as much. There's almost a correlation between needing labor and having slaves. Look at a place like China, for example, which historically has never had a problem finding cheap labor. Well, they didn't have chattel slavery in China. They did have things, though, like debt slavery and convict slavery. They had what we would call today, which is simply a euphemism to disguise the evilness of slavery, they had forced labor. And debt slavery is a huge problem even on this planet today, which is where I begin to wonder if we've ever really gotten away from this concept of slavery. And when I wonder about the evilness of it, you start to look at other human beings and say, Are they really all evil in the past? I mean, if all these societies throughout the world, all over the planets, in every era, had slaves, are all these people evil and we've just become good recently? What is it? As I said, two of my wife's grandfather's lifetimes, we've gotten rid of chattel slavery in the United States. Is that the beginning of human altruism and goodness? Doesn't make sense, does it? That's why I asked if we had a space colony, how long before they developed slavery. There must be something about this human institution that made it possible and desirable. And I thought about this a while. The first thing that came to my mind is something I grew up with. You know, it wasn't from my era. It was from a little before, but we still had the fumes of this idea when I was growing up. The idea was about something that they called in the advertisements, the kitchen of tomorrow. I always thought this was interesting, the kitchen of tomorrow. And this referred to the idea, comes from the 1950s mostly, 
that mankind was becoming so technologically advanced that we were going to develop so many labor-saving devices that in the very near future, people were going to be freed up from all the chores and the drudgery that makes up a lot of our modern-day lives. Don't like cooking? Don't worry. A computer is going to cook for you and the food will just come out on a tray, right? The kitchen of tomorrow, today. Now, needless to say, we're not there yet. But the more I read about the slavery issue, the more I realized that we're in almost like an interglacial period when it comes to slavery. Because what this kitchen of tomorrow today was promising is a return to the sort of lives of leisure that our ancestors who owned slaves had. Folks, the original labor-saving device is not some technological instrument. It's another person to do the labor for you. I mean, just look at the way some of the ancient thinkers described slavery. Aristotle described slaves, for example, the great Greek philosopher, as human instruments meant to act like machines. There you go, folks. There's your kitchen of tomorrow today, and instead of a computer churning out your food, you just have a slave doing it. There's a scholar named Gustav Glotz, and he said that a slave was an animated tool, and that a gang of slaves was a machine with men for parts. It's an interesting way to look at other human beings, isn't it? And you start to think about why people might own slaves or put up with slavery as an institution. Well, in order to do that, you have to realize what these animated tools were providing for the societies that they lived in. I mean, just imagine for a moment that you didn't have to pay people to do work. This is a radical, radical mental change for modern people to make. We're so used to having labor be like a taxi cab. And if you want someone to cut your lawn, a gardener, it's a little like you get in the taxi cab and they turn the meter on and until you get out of the taxi cab, that meter is running and running and running and the amount you're going to have to pay is going up and up and up. And when the labor's done, the meter goes up and you pay the person, you know, who just provided the service for you. But slavery is more like buying the car. There's an upfront fee to get the car. There's maintenance costs to keep it running. But after that, and besides that, you don't have to pay for that labor at all. This is a radical departure from the way the modern world works. And you know, there was a um, description. It's a famous description, and a lot of people have used it, to describe what life was like in the pre-modern world. You'll hear someone talk about medieval times or something. And they'll say, life in medieval times was nasty, brutish, and short. And in a lot of cases, that's true. But not all cases. I mean, you take your average upper-middle-class Roman woman, for example. Their life wasn't nasty, brutish, and short. As a matter of fact, compared to a modern housewife, they lived lives of leisure in a lot of cases. Didn't have to do much of anything. You know why? They had the original labor-saving device doing it for them. They had the kitchen of tomorrow, not today, yesterday. They had slaves to do the gardening, slaves to clean the house, slaves to raise and educate the children, slaves to do their hair and draw their bath. You name it, 
in a lot of these countries and a lot of these time periods, the people who were well-to-do and even the people who weren't that well-to-do had nothing they had to do. This is a radical mental change from what we're used to thinking. It also starts to provide a little bit of insight as to why people might have been loath to give that up. A person whose life isn't nasty, brutish, and short is going to find all sorts of rationalizations to make slavery seem okay. Otherwise, you know, if they free their slaves, all of a sudden their lives do become nasty, brutish, and short. And you can see these rationalizations, by the way, wherever you look. In ancient Greece, Aristotle and Plato were full of them. I mean, Aristotle said that it was better to have slaves for both the slave and the master. His exact line was something like, it is better to be ruled by someone else's reason than by no reason at all. And he believed that a slave would simply be a slave to their appetites if no one ruled them. And you find this same sort of thinking in the idea of the happy slaves on the plantation in the South. I mean, listen to this. This is a um, perfect example of the kind of thinking where I think human beings are rationalizing something that they know is evil and wrong, but they can't bring themselves to contemplate what life would be like without it. So they hide the evil nature of what they're doing from even themselves. Listen to this. An abolitionist is any man who does not love slavery for its own sake, as a divine institution, who does not worship it as the cornerstone of civil liberty, who does not adore it as the only possible social condition on which a permanent Republican government can be erected, and who does not, in his innermost soul, desire to see it extended and perpetuated over the whole earth as a means of human reformation second in dignity, importance, and sacredness alone to the Christian religion." an editorial in the Southern Literary Messenger in 1861. How about this, though, in a similar vein, written by Senator John C. Calhoun in 1837? Never before has the black race of Central Africa attained a condition so civilized and so improved, not only physically, but morally and intellectually. It came among us in a low, degraded, and savage condition, and in the course of a few generations it has grown up under the fostering care of our institutions to its present comparatively civilized condition. Makes you think we did them a favor by making them slaves. That's a person trying to fool themselves. Are they evil? I'm not sure. I think if they were evil, they wouldn't try so hard to fool themselves. They simply don't want to live in a world where they're forced to do the same things that these slaves are doing for them. What's more, there was even a belief that slavery was natural and important because without it, society couldn't progress. I mean, here's another example of an opinion piece from somebody who is explaining why you must have slavery if humankind is to progress. Quote, In all social systems, there must be a class to do the menial duties, to perform the drudgery of life. Such a class you must have, or you will not have the other class which leads to progress, civilization, and refinement. It constitutes the very mudsills of society and of political government. Fortunately for the South, she found a race adapted to that purpose to her hand. Senator James H. Hammond, 1858. 
Now, what's ironic, though, about this way of thinking is that it's very possible that slavery actually retarded technological innovation. Historians have been wondering forever why the Roman Empire, for example, seemed to be stalled in terms of technological development. Why weren't the Romans the ones who went to the moon or something like that? Well, in a funny way, slavery provides answers to problems that when you don't have slaves, you have to figure out technological ways around. In other words, you don't need labor-saving devices like the kind we invent today all the time if you have slaves to do it for you, do you? In South America, where um, slavery lasted longer than it did in North America, there were actually places outside of the major cities where they didn't put in hydrants and water systems in place. And they didn't do that because they didn't need to. They had slaves to do that stuff. As a matter of fact, it got even worse than that because the slaveholders down there actually made extra money hiring their slaves out to draw water and bring water to people. And so they actively asked the state and lobbied the state not to put in these water systems because it would impact their income. This is a perfect example of how just maybe had we, humankind, recognized the evils of slavery earlier, and gotten rid of it earlier, who knows how much farther along, technologically speaking, we might be today. Slavery retarded technology. And yet, in its own way, it's possible that slavery was an advance in human morality. How weird is that? I had to get used to that concept myself, and yet it's something I've always wondered about, being a military history buff. When I read in uh, Milton... Melter's book, this same thought, I thought to myself, okay, I'm not crazy, but here's the way that idea works. I mean, it's blasphemous, but it makes some sense. Way back in prehistoric times, when human beings would fight each other and one side would defeat the other, generally the way that the survivors of the defeated side were treated is they were simply massacred. You know, you line them up and you start lopping off heads. What Meltzer says is that at some point in human prehistory, somebody realized, and it may have been at the suggestion of one of the people in line to have their heads lopped off, that these people that were about to be massacred were worth more alive than dead. And what did these defeated individuals have to offer their captors? Their labor. Their lives may have been spared as part of a deal. You work for me and I won't kill you now. And what Meltzer says is, as strange as this sounds, that might have been a step forward in human morality. How blasphemous does that sound? I think it's open to interpretation. Maybe people would be better off dead than a slave, but seems to me you'd have to ask the individual about to have their head lopped off how they felt about that. There are those who suggest that the Hebrews who became the slaves of the Pharaoh in biblical times. You remember that story, right? Moses led them out of bondage, but someone led them into bondage. And the belief now is that it's possible, Meltzer says, that the reason that those Hebrews became the slaves of the Pharaohs to begin with is that they were starving and that they made a deal. You feed us and we'll work for you. Now, is that evil? Or is that somehow a, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back kind of a situation? As I said, this is full of more questions than answers, but I begin to wonder about us as human beings. Are we inherently evil or is this something 
less than evil. Now, one of the things that colors American slavery, pardon the pun, unintended, um, and makes it different from slavery in the ancient world or the medieval world or the pre, you know, historical world, because slavery goes before civilization. A lot of people like to blame civilization for a lot of the evils of the modern world, but slavery seems to predate even that. American slavery had a racial component, as I said earlier, a prejudice. We based it on the skin color of people. Now, that's unusual, though. You look at slavery, for example, in the ancient Mediterranean world, had nothing to do with skin color. Anybody could become a slave. And this is important because there was almost an egalitarianness to slavery. Because you weren't condemned from birth necessarily, necessarily, sometimes you were, uh, to being a slave. Rich people could fall into slavery. And slaves could rise up out of slavery. There's a story of a famous Athenian slave named Formio, who not only managed to get his freedom, but ended up becoming one of the richest people in Athens. And when he died, he had a memorial put up to him. He was quite the philanthropist. And anybody could fall into slavery for all sorts of reasons. You could be captured by pirates who simply plowed the seas looking for people to steal. You'd be asleep in your village on the coastline. These pirates would beach their ships, come into your hut, take you or your children, run away, take you over to the island nearby where they had a slave market, and just sell you. Julius Caesar, the famous Roman dictator at one time in his life, was captured in just that way, became a slave for a short period of time before becoming free. And in the slave markets in Rome, one of the most prized slaves that the public wanted were the little blonde Anglo-Saxon children that sometimes made it to the slave market. And they liked him because they looked like little angels. Which, by the way, reminds me to point out, let's not forget the sexual component of slavery. Imagine all the people today who would go and buy a sex slave if they were available and there were no moral qualms about it. And both men and women were worth more at these slave markets if they were pretty or attractive because that's exactly what they were going to be used for. And not just that, even the ones who weren't specifically bought to be part of a harem often ended up as a sex slave as part of their side duties. There's a great quote from Mary Chestnut, whose diary was written right before the Civil War, about all the mulatto children running around the plantations down south. Mulatto, by the way, a politically incorrect word in use at the time to describe mixed-race people. And Chestnut points out that all the white women would gossip about who was sleeping with their slaves, based on, you know, who the mulatto children looked like, while consciously or unconsciously ignoring the fact that this was also happening, you know, on their own plantation, and that some of these mulatto children looked a lot like their husbands. Listen to this. Quote, God forgive us, but ours is a monstrous system, and wrong, and iniquity. Like the patriarchs of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and their concubines, and the mulattoes one sees in every family exactly resemble the white children. And every lady tells you who is the father of all the mulatto children in everyone's household but those in her own. These, she seems to think, drop from the clouds, or pretends so to think. End quote. Mary Chestnut of South Carolina, 
diary entry for 18th of March, 1861. So you can see there's a sexual component and a dominance and a sexual aspect to slavery, even when these slaves were not bought specifically to be harem concubines like they might be in, say, Turkey or some part of the Islamic world. Sexual slavery in the American South might have been more of a side gig, an unwanted, horrible side job. But it was there, present, an important component to the whole thing the whole time. And let's remember that this is part of the kind of slavery that still goes on today. Sexual slavery has never died out. And those of you who've listened to me for any period of time, you probably already know that I'm a bit of a freedom nut. My wife says that about me. I'm a freedom nut, and I freely acknowledge that. But this blinds me to certain realities. I have always found it easier to imagine being a slave, and I imagine this uh, applies to a lot of you folks as well. I've known uh, uh, plenty of uh, uh, black friends who wonder what it was like for their ancestors or what it would be like for them if they were slaves. Easier for us to try that side of the equation than it is to imagine being a slaveholder. But you have to sort of imagine what it'd be like to be a slaveholder or to live in a slave society if you're going to understand why people kept slaves. I remember reading the stuff in the Punic Wars where it became apparent at a certain point in Rome's history, for example, that going and attacking cities in order to grab people that you could then sell into bondage was one of the main reasons you were doing it in the first place. We don't think of people the same way we think of money, but there was a real correlation back then. What was it? Karl Marx, the uh, famous, well, Marxist, basically equated labor with wealth. Matter of fact, he said that slavery was the hub of the wheel that the Industrial Revolution turned on. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, this modern world we live in right now may be built on slavery. It's possible, just possible, that the low prices that we enjoy at some of the stores we shop at today that make it possible for us to lead a better lifestyle than had we had to pay higher prices is the result of people in some other country forced to work at a job they don't want to work at in conditions that might be compared to modern slavery. It's possible that we're still benefiting from human bondage in some roundabout way today. Which brings me to the idea, as I said, of having slaves. I mean, owning a slave was like money in the bank. I mean, not only did you have someone to do the work that you would normally have to do, the drudgery kind of chore-based work, but you could hire your slave out to work for other people and then collect the money. In the ancient world, getting yourself a bunch of slaves was building up your wealth. I always find it fascinating to, to contrast, say, the slavery we had in the American South here in the United States with the kind of slavery they had in the ancient world. In the American South, the slaves were kept uneducated because the slaveholders were worried if they were educated, they would want their freedom. In the ancient world, the reverse was true. They wanted educated slaves, and slaves who knew more commanded more money at the markets. As a matter of fact, one of the ways the famous Roman orator Cato made a little money on the side was he would buy uneducated slaves teach them skills and knowledge, and then resell them for a profit. 
in the same way people buy old houses today, fix them up and resell them for a profit. There are stories of slaveholders in the ancient world that would impress dinner guests by having their slaves come into the dinner chambers and recite all the lines from some of the famous plays of the day. The more educated your slaves were, the more it reflected well on you. In fact, one of the ways that slaves could really make a man, you know, a fine living was you would get yourself a gang of slaves to work in your business, start a business, have a bunch of slaves to do the work instead of having to pay real laborers the way we would today. And then you get an intelligent, educated slave to run the business for you and you turn it over to them, the day-to-day operations, and you go sit on the beach while your various slaves are running your business and making you money. And in the ancient world, a lot of times these slaves would earn their freedom that way. You could end up retiring. The slave you had running your business becomes a free man. It becomes his business. He makes a bunch of money. See, that's a key point to slavery and the evils connected with it. It's something called manumission, which means freeing of slaves. And a key point in manumission was whether or not your society allowed the slaves to own anything of their own. In the American South, they couldn't own anything. So they could never, for example, earn enough money to buy their freedom. In the ancient world, a lot of times, you could own stuff. And a slave, for example, would have a day off on Sunday. On that day, they could hire out their labor for their own benefit. They could save the money that they made on that day off. There were also certain holidays. One was a holiday uh, devoted to the, uh, the god Saturn, where the slave and the master actually changed places for the day. But there were ways that a slave could build up a little war chest of money and buy their own freedom. This helped act a little bit like a safety valve to take some of the pressure off society so that the slaves just didn't explode in revolt. Nevertheless, there were slave revolts all the time and in ways we can't even envision. For example, Rome had several wars that were called the Servile Wars. Servile being another word for slave, of course. The most famous involved a slave you've probably heard of named Spartacus. And at the height of Spartacus's success, he was running around Italy with 70 or 80,000 slaves taking on several Roman legions. The Romans fought full-out wars with their slaves at times, and they were merciless when they won these wars. The uh, war that Spartacus was involved in ended up with slaves being crucified all along the main road for miles and miles and miles every few feet all the way to Rome as an example to the rest of their slaves. There's another story of a Roman slave revolt where the slaves had died to almost the last man. There were a thousand slaves left and they negotiated with the Romans for their surrender And the Romans said, if you lay down your weapons, we'll spare you. So they laid down their weapons and the Romans reneged on the deal and took all 1,000 of them and were going to put them in the gladiatorial games because a lot of the gladiators were slaves. Spartacus was a gladiator slave. And the 1,000 slaves who had been betrayed by the Romans instead decided to have the last laugh. And they said that they were not going to be playthings for the mob. And they killed each other and committed suicide right on the altar of the arena before they went in to fight. That's sort of like flipping the Romans the middle finger, but also showing you how desperate a condition slavery was. For every slave that got to run his Roman master's business and have a halfway decent life and a halfway decent chance of buying their freedom, there were 
tons of slaves that had to work 10 and 15 hours shackled at the feet, stripped to the waist, in the mines until they died. You listen to the kind of punishments that could be meted out to a slave in Rome or Greece or any of these places, and it doesn't sound a whole lot different than the terrible things that could be done to black slaves in the American South. I mean, listen, listen to this, some of the sort of punishments people did to slaves back then. Meltzer writes about what could be done to a Roman slave. He says, It was nothing new to be indifferent to the feelings of the slave. The slaves lived in an empire that had swallowed up the world. The rulers had waged victorious wars in which more people had been enslaved than ever before in history. The victims' lives were held cheap by rulers and masters who enjoyed absolute power. Romans not only tolerated, but delighted in the death of slave gladiators by the thousands. Brandings, burnings, floggings, and maimings were inflicted by the masters who, as Seneca once said, would punish for absurd reasons. An obscure answer, an impertinent look, a whisper so subdued that we could not even hear it. The Romans also had a horrible law that was intended to keep slaves from rebelling against their masters. The law prescribed that if a slave killed their master, all the slaves that the master owned were to be killed also. And in one case, it provoked outrage in Rome when a man that no one liked anyway was killed by his slave and 400 of the man's slaves were put to death in retaliation. And there was a debate between famous Romans over whether or not this should go forward. And the side that said that it should happen and the 400 should be killed won the day by pointing out that not a master in Rome would be safe if the slaves didn't understand that if any slave killed their master, everyone was doomed. Collective punishment was deemed better than the potential for a slave revolt. Now, that's awful, obviously. But the treatment of slaves in more recent times is just as nasty as that, if not worse. I mean, listen to what occurred regularly, according to the writer C.L.R. James, from official reports in the French colonial archives to black slaves in Haiti but a century or two ago. Quote, There was no ingenuity that fear or a depraved imagination could devise which was not employed to break their spirit and satisfy the lusts and resentment of their owners and guardians. Irons on the hands and feet, blocks of wood that the slaves had to drag behind them wherever they went, the tin plate mask designed to prevent the slaves from eating the sugar cane, the iron collar. Whippings were interrupted in order to pass a piece of hot wood on the buttocks of the victim. Salt, pepper, citron, cinders, aloes, and hot ashes were poured into the bleeding wounds. Mutilations were common. Limbs, ears, and sometimes the private parts to deprive them of their pleasures which they could indulge in without expense. Their masters poured burning wax on their arms and hands and shoulders, emptied the boiling cane sugar over their heads, burned them alive, roasted them on slow fires, filled them with gunpowder and blew them up with a match, buried them up to the neck and smeared their heads with sugar so that the flies might devour them, fastened them near to the nests of ants or wasps, made them eat their excrement, drink their urine, and lick the saliva of other slaves. These were not the mad acts of crazed colonists, the writer asserts, but the normal features of slave life, he said. End quote. What sort of creature does this regularly to another human being or even to an animal? 
Are we related to these sorts of people? This was normal treatment. This was not unusual. Man's inhumanity to man, indeed. And let's not forget the numbers of people we're talking about here. When the Romans went to war in the Punic Wars, this story that originally got me thinking about slavery, they were taking so many slaves that it boggles the mind. Julius Caesar took 53,000 slaves when he took one Gallic town. The soldiers and the slavers would carry their own chains and shackles and fetters in anticipation of the booty that they were going to capture when they won the battle. The Roman general Aemilius Paulus sold 150,000 pirates from Greece into slavery. Scipio Africanus sold 50,000 Carthaginians into slavery just from his operations on the island of Sicily. The Roman general Marius took 90,000 German Teutons and 60,000 German and Celtic Cimbri captives in 102 and 101 BC. Think about how many people that is right there. When Rome fought the Jews in the Middle East, they sold 100,000 of them into slavery. Slavery became a reason to go to war, not just a byproduct of having a war. Now, nobody knows how many slaves the Romans had at their height, but the estimates from historians, which are all over the map, admittedly, some of them, though, range as high as three slaves in Italy to every free citizen. Free citizens outnumbered three to one. Some Romans, like uh, Pompey the Great, owned more than 20,000 slaves. But even men of relatively modest means could own 200, 300, 400 slaves themselves. And even poor people owned slaves. I mean, talk about an equal opportunity labor-saving device. A poor man generally had two or three slaves of his own. Sometimes even slaves owned slaves, which is a very strange concept. You think about how they were used, too, in... Ancient Greece and Athens, they used slaves for police officers sometimes. Can you imagine a black slave police officer in the American South stopping a white man and deciding to arrest him? Boggles the mind, doesn't it? In some places, slaves were used as the soldiery. Don't want to go fight in a war? That's a terrible, dirty job. Let's have the slaves do it. The Turks used people called the Janissaries, which were famous fighters, but they were Christian children who were taken into Islamic service and raised up to be these soldiers. They were slave soldiers. The Sudan in Eastern Africa provided lots of slave soldiers for Islam. And slavery was such big money, you can see how human greed might have helped to blind people to the evils of this particular activity. Let's look at the slave trade as it started in Africa. You see, the African slave trade had been dominated by Arabs in the East for a long time. Once the church, the Catholic church, prohibited keeping Christians as slaves, slavers began looking for all sorts of alternatives. And one of the alternatives were Africans, heathens, they were called by the Catholic church. And the Portuguese started going down to Africa and grabbing Slaves that were sold to them by more powerful tribes. There was a vicious cycle going on in Africa where the Portuguese, the English, the Dutch, the French would go down there. They would have 
trade deals with powerful tribes who lived on the coast, and they would give these powerful tribes, for example, guns in exchange for captives that these powerful tribes had taken from weaker tribes from the interior of Africa. The guns that were given to these powerful tribes simply gave them more dominance over their weaker neighbors in the interior, and they were able to then get more slaves. A $10 slave bought from these coastal African peoples and sold to, say, the English could be transported to the New World and sold for $650, $10 in 1840s money for $650 in 1840s money. You start to see what sort of profit motive we're talking about here. Slaving was immensely profitable. 100% profits on slave ship voyages were not uncommon. And not just that, there was an economic trickle-down effect to entire cities. You know, when As we said earlier, Marx said that the Industrial Revolution turned on the wheel of slavery or was the hub of the wheel of slavery. Look at how slaving affected just one particular city that was heavily into the trade. Liverpool in England was a city that benefited greatly from the slave trade. But most of the people in Liverpool didn't own slaves. Listen to Meltzer's description, quoting an original primary source, of how the people in Liverpool benefited from slavery. And you start to see what an economic giant this was. I mean, when you talk about the big commodities of the 19th century, it's gold, drugs, which is mainly things like opium, and slaves. Listen to what the Liverpool economy turned on. Quote, By 1800, Liverpool was sending 120 ships a year to the African coast with a total loading capacity of some 35,000 slaves. The city carried about 90% of the slaves out of Africa. The average net profit of each voyage was about 30%, and profits of 100% were not uncommon. The whole city, said a Liverpool minister, was built up on the blood of poor Africans. Tailors, grocers, tallow chandlers, attorneys, all had shares in fitting the slave ships. The trade used the labor of thousands of boat builders, carpenters, coopers, riggers, sailmakers, glaziers, joiners, ironmongers, gunsmiths, and carters. Just 10 companies in the town controlled two-thirds of the slave trade. Production of the goods for the cargoes to Africa stimulated British industry, giving employment to her workers and brought great profits to her businessmen. Much of that commercial capital made its way into industry to help launch the Industrial Revolution. So writes Milton Meltzer. Now, the United States, when it becomes a country, has real problems from the get-go. Because it is founded in an era where slavery is common, and yet it's founded with a completely new idea, isn't it? The idea that all men are created equal. This becomes an internal contradiction that the founding fathers of the United States recognize right from the very beginning, and free black people like Frederick Douglass make sure that they remember it, and yet they seem powerless to do anything about it. Thomas Jefferson, one of the most schizophrenic of the founding fathers, has to change part of an early draft of his constitution to satisfy some of the southern slaveholding states or they're not joining the union. I mean, Jefferson, who apparently had sexual relations with some of his slaves, also said, quote, we have a wolf by the ear and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation on the other. He also said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. 
And people like George Washington also talked about freedom a lot, and even freedom for slaves, sort of, but he never gave them up. There were founders like uh, Thomas Paine and John Woolman and Henry Lawrence who took that idea of all men are created equal seriously and opposed slavery from the get-go. I mean, the minute they broke with Great Britain, they were talking about getting rid of slavery. And there, of course, in the United States were great black leaders themselves who fought against slavery. Frederick Douglass is extremely famous. Harriet Tubman, of course, huge in the Underground Railroad movement, which was a movement, a clandestine movement, and a lot of people went to jail for a lot of years for being a part of this, where they would smuggle slaves from the unfree South to the free North. Part of the reason slavery had such a problem existing in the United States was because there was a safe haven once you got north of a certain part of the country. There were things like fugitive slave acts, which were intended to stop practices like this. But there were great black leaders, people like Henry Bibb, Henry Garnett, William W. Brown. Garnett actually called for a slave revolution at one point. He said, there's four million of us. If we all rebel at the same time, you know, we can be free. And when you consider how horrible American slavery was in North America, you wonder why there weren't more slave revolts. There were small ones. Nat Turner comes to mind. Uh, There was a tiny little slave revolt led by uh, or involving a guy named Nat Turner. And we have um, an account where Nat Turner describes the killing of his master and his master's family as part of this revolt. And it's very dramatic. Listen to this. Quote. Armed with a hatchet and accompanied by Will, I entered my master's chamber. It being dark, I could not give him a death blow and the hatchet glanced from his head. He sprang from the bed and called his wife. It was his last word. Will laid him dead with a blow of his axe, and Mrs. Travis shared the same fate as she lay in bed. The murder of his family, five in number, was the work of a moment, and not one of them awoke. There was a little infant sleeping in a cradle that was forgotten until we had left the house and gone some distance when Henry and Will returned and killed it. It was my object to carry terror and destruction wherever we went. Nat Turner shared the fate, by the way, of almost every slave leader of every slave rebellion you can ever look at. He was hanged. Now, while it's hard for modern people to sympathize with anyone who would kill a whole family, babies included, let's understand the position that these people were in and wonder about how we ourselves would handle it, the freedom-loving modern people that we consider ourselves to be. There's an extraordinary letter from Henry Bibb, who uh, became an activist later on, but who was a slave who escaped to Canada and saw fit after his escape to actually write a letter to his former master explaining why he left. The letter is a powerful testament to... Well, the human cruelty that was involved in slavery and explains, I think, very well why people like Nat Turner would do what they did and think about what you would do in the same situation. Here's what Bibb's letter says to his former master. To be compelled to stand by and see you whip and slash my wife without mercy while I could afford her no protection, not even offering myself to suffer the lash in her place— was more than I felt it to be the duty of a slave husband to endure while the way was open to Canada. 
My infant child was also frequently flogged by Mrs. Gatewood for crying until its skin was bruised literally purple. This kind of treatment was what drove me from my home and family to seek a better home for them. End quote. How long would you have been able to stand by while someone whipped your infant child? Think about a master who actually had the right to take your wife from your bed and put her in the bed of some friend of his who was coming and visiting for the night. You forget the absolute power we're talking about here with chattel slavery and what it could drive someone like you to do. And this kind of revolt by Nat Turner was the greatest fear that the South had. They were terrified of slave revolts. The Romans had a saying, every slave we own is an enemy we harbor. There was a quote, too, by a northern traveler traveling in the South for the first time. And he noted the fortress-like nature of the surroundings. Interesting quote. He said this. Quote, you come to police machinery such as you never find in towns under free government. Citadels, sentries, passports, grape-shotted cannons, and daily public whippings. End quote. Slave societies had to go to great lengths to prevent revolt, and it turned the whole societies into fortresses. And it was weird living next to people who you think might hate your guts, but you have daily contact with. There's an interesting piece by some French people living in Haiti, I believe it is, working on the plantation, surrounded by more slaves than countrymen. He writes, Have pity for an existence which must be eked out far from the world of our own people. We here number five whites, my father, my mother, my two brothers, and myself, surrounded by more than 200 slaves. The number of our Negroes who are domestics alone coming almost to 30. From morning to night, wherever we turn, their faces meet our eyes. No matter how early we awaken, they're at our bedsides. And the custom which obtains here not to make the least move without the help of one of these Negro servants brings about not only that we live in their society the greater portion of the day, but also that they're involved in the least important events of our daily life. Should we go outside our house to the workshops? We are still subject to this strange propinquity. Add to this the fact that our conversation has almost entirely to do with the health of our slaves, their needs which must be cared for, the manner in which they are to be distributed about the estate, and their attempts to revolt, and you will come to the understanding that our entire life is so closely identified with that of these unfortunates that in the end it is the same as theirs. And despite whatever pleasure may come from that almost complete dominance which it has given us to exercise over them, what regrets do not assail us daily because of our inability to have contact and correspondence with others than these unfortunates so far removed from us in point of view and customs and education? This letter writer found it uncomfortable to be dealing with slaves all the time. Sounds like his conscience was tugging at him hard. But he wasn't talking about freeing these people. He was talking about getting away so he didn't have to see what was going on. Now, the fact that slavery could not stand, that the modern world wouldn't put up with chattel slavery, and that it 
you know, was purged in blood, as the saying went here in the United States, and that it died out in South America, and that most of the modern developed world began to abhor slavery, that didn't mean it went away. It just means that it went underground to a degree. And there were some very strange and ironic twists, too. For example, Europeans almost seemed to forget that they were in large part responsible for making slavery a modern big business. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you would have English and German and French missionaries in Africa working as hard as they could to stamp out slavery because the Arab traders were still involved in slaves. I mean, an Italian explorer reported back to his government that between 1860 and 1876, more than 400,000 slaves had been taken from the Sudan alone and sold in Egypt and Turkey. A German explorer predicted that if the Arab slave trade wasn't stopped in East Africa, the tribes in that area would simply cease to exist. According to English explorer Richard Burton, three out of four Darfur tribesmen have been taken into slave captivity and more than 8,000 boys castrated to make harem eunuchs. Half of them died during that operation, by the way. So you start to see slavery for what it really is once the Europeans realize how evil it was. Here's the problem. They forget that they were the reason it was such big business in the first place, and they started seeing this as an inherently African evil, as though the Africans invented this, perpetuated it, and were solely responsible for it. And this became part of the excuse for what was called the white man's burden. In other words, the white societies had to go into these places to save those people from these ancient horrible practices like slavery. And in some cases, this excuse to alleviate their suffering from this horrible thing called human chattel slavery led to the annexation of these areas as colonies. Unless you think that this thing ever went away, there was a slave revolt, ladies and gentlemen, in 1961, 1961, in Angola. Now, it didn't involve what you would call slavery. It involved what we would call today forced labor, which is our nice way of saying slavery. And people forget, too, that when you look at the 20th century, it's full of forced labor. What do you think the Nazis were trying to do with grabbing up people from the East? You know, they wanted Lebensraum, which was living space for the Nazi state. But the people, the Untermenschen, the subhumans who lived in that area, were going to be the slaves of the state. Outside the Krupp arms factory during the Second World War, they had signs that said, Slavs are slaves, which is where the term actually comes from, the Slavic people. William Shirer, who um, was a historian of Germany during the Second World War, wrote that had the Germans won the war, the New World Order they had planned would have meant the rule of the Nazi master race over a gigantic slave state spanning from the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains. Now, of course, the reason the Nazis lost that war probably is because they were taking on Stalin's Russia, which was itself a giant slave state, the Gulag Archipelago, that people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about. Just another example of massive amounts of forced labor with people today we would call slaves. And some have suggested, including Meltzer, that the forced laborers in places like the communist Siberian labor camps were actually worse off than chattel slaves because he says chattel slaves at least were seen as valuable pieces of property to be taken care of and maintained whereas 
forced laborers were there to work until they died. As a matter of fact, the Nazis had a term for killing the Jews through work, and they called it extermination through work. And we have to be careful, too, before we criticize these societies because the Chinese communists do something similar. Reform through work, they call it. And convicts are often made to go to hard labor. And then what they make is sometimes exported to countries like ours. We talked about low prices earlier, didn't we? But folks, if I told you that somebody in your country committed a terrible crime and that the judge sentenced them to 20 years hard labor, would we think that was justified because the guy did something bad? Would we see it for what it probably really is? which is condemning them to slavery because they had done a bad thing and we had a good reason to do it? I'm not sure we would. If these series of programs have any recurring themes, one of them has to be the fact that we're not as superior and different from our ancestors as we think we are. This slavery issue is one where it's easy to pretend that we're superior to our forebears. But let me ask you something. If you were traveling in some faraway country on some tourist visit and you were walking down to the local marketplace to pick up some touristy trinkets or whatever for the folks back home and you happened upon the public square at a time when they had lashed another human being to a post in the middle of the square, ripped off their clothes and were cutting their skin to the bone with a bullwhip. In other words, punishing a slave in their society. What would you do? Would you have a crisis of confidence? Run up and try to do something for that person? Interfere with the person with the bullwhip? Would you go back to your hotel? Call your travel agent? Call the whole trip off? Call the American or British or European newspapers and say you won't believe what's going on in this country? Or would you just figure... You know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Because I have a feeling there were a lot of people who probably lived in slave states. Mary Chestnut, who we quoted earlier, seems to be a kind of person like this, who walked around and looked at the world that they inherited and the institutions that sickened them and just thought, what am I supposed to do about it? It's a monstrosity, but it's life. And folks, this is not such an academic question. Because they're still slaves today. Debt slavery continues in lots of places. Child slavery, people selling their kids, still goes on just as it did hundreds and thousands of years ago. You know, the North American Indians in the Pacific Northwest used to have a child market where everyone who wanted to sell their kids knew that's where you took your kids to sell them. Went on for hundreds of years in pre-Columbian America. Sex slavery continues even in the modern, so-called modern Western nations. And forced labor still continues. And it's possible, ladies and gentlemen, that we all benefit in roundabout ways from it. You know, we talked about the low prices as just one example. It may be just like that poor soul in that faraway place being lashed to a tree and whipped to the bone. There's just more degrees of separation between us and them. I used to call it plausible deniability in politics. I wonder what our slaveholding ancestors would think about an arrangement like that. Would they think that this was progress in a moral sense? 
Or would they just think that we had become more hypocritical about our relationship to this oldest of human institutions? Who knows? Maybe they would argue that there was some benefit to at least being honest about it instead of sweeping it under the rug and pretending we were somehow superior. I don't know what the answer is. I just know that I'm glad we're not really being judged because I think the outcome of that decision could go either way. Are you feeling guilty yet? A buck a show. It's all we ask. Get more hardcore history at dancarlin.com.